Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Railston and it's a sunny Friday afternoon, although my voice has kind of give the impression that it's winter in Salford because I have got a bit of a bit of a flu at the moment. So excuse uh, me if you hear any sniffles throughout this podcast and I'm joined with Rich Fee. I'll say apologies to him too. Rich, I've got my, uh, my toilet roll here. By, by, by my side, just in case for the next half an hour, 45 minutes. I'm sh- I, I didn't really think about that. Some jokes could definitely be made on that and clipped up. Um, how are you, Rich? How are you? Yeah, it's always good to have a trusted toilet roll by your side isn't it, when you're <laughs> doing your podcast. I, I'm good, thank you very much. I mean, you look very tanned, Steve. If anyone's watching this on YouTube, I'm not sure I'm buying this this cold. Is, are we saying that's the, the reason well, you producer, producer Sam said that before we went on air, and I said the reason I am quite tanned, because I am. I look like the colour of my door, don't I? Almost um, behind us for the people who are watching on YouTube. I thought it'd be a good idea to burn the illness out of us yesterday, so I had to lie down outside on, on the grass outside my flat, and I don't think it worked, but I did pick up some colour. No, you've so, got a bit of the Dale Winton about you today. <laughs> the late great Dale. Is that a compliment? Is that a compliment? You tell me. You tell me. Yeah, I'm not sure it is. I look more of a, like an umba-lumba, really, I think. Um, but straight to the football then, Rich. There's a, a bit of news to digest this week. We'll have a bit of takeover chat, a bit of transfer chat, and look ahead. Maybe the pre-season, because some trips away for me and you, and uh, obviously a tour of North America as well. We'll get into that a bit later on. But I guess it's worth starting with a bit of takeover uh, conversations. That's all been rumbling on again this week. Um I guess there's, there's kind of not really been a solid update and it's getting to the point where are you probably as bored as me for all this, all this takeover chat? Because it, there just seems to be no end in sight, does it, Rich? I mean, we're, we're eight months on since they put the club up for sale in November and is there light at the end of the tunnel? I'm not so sure at the moment. Exactly. It's You sort of have to take everything with such a pinch of salt at the moment. There's been so many deadlines. There's been so many sort of indications that we're approaching the end game throughout those eight months that I do think most fans, and I'd say this to anyone really, is until you see that sort of official statement and until it's done, just don't believe anything really because there's been lots of conflicting reports. You've got to remember that where are these reports coming from? It's all going to be sort of PR and hyperbole and bravado from, from either party really, indicating that they're further along than they might be or that they're very confident of, of sealing a deal at, at this moment in time. So I think you've got to be very cautious the way that you, you approach it. Um, you know, Qatar, we've heard a lot this week and it does sound like, you know, there, there could be some serious movement there, but you've got to remember why they would be saying that because they want the end of this themselves. They want to act like they are in a position to secure Man United now and they've already had to up their bid several times. They are growing frustrated. You know, it was only, what, a week ago, two weeks ago that they were saying it was take it or leave it and now, you know, this talk could retaliate another bid from Ratcliffe. There could be further twists and turns, uh, you know, along the way. So I I would just be very cautious the way that maybe fans are getting uh, carried away a bit at at this moment in time. I mean, we're recording this on the Friday afternoon, uh, 16th of June. It was only yesterday that we had these conflicting reports. Different, you know, sort of business journalists saying different things to football journalists, talking to different sources, getting different sort of angles on, on the story. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. It's still very unclear as to what the situation is right now. Um, those initial reports said that United were considering granting Sheikh Yassim exclusive negotiating negotiating rights. But then even the, the Reuters story that said that th- then sort of caveated it saying, but Jim Ratcliffe could, could then come in with an improved bid 
and that negotiation period could then be withdrawn. So there's there is no sort of finite details to all at the moment, and you've got to, because it is a bidding process. If the Glazers agreed to go into negotiating rights with someone else, and then the other party retaliated with an even better offer, they'd be in a difficult situation then, because would they be contractually obliged to to go ahead with the exclusive rights they'd previously agreed, or would they say, well, look, there's a better offer here for us and we want to pursue that instead? So I still think there are plenty more twists and turns in this saga, and you know it's taken eight months already. We even saw one report what was yesterday saying that this could be dragged on into next season as well. So just because the transfer window opens and it seems like the, the perfect opportunity for United to, to have the sale complete, that doesn't mean it's going to happen, sadly. I think it's the perfect case study in takeovers, really. I mean, I, I get quite interested. Um, I mean, Newcastle's takeover was another interesting example when you see the reporting of it. And in my experience, anyways, obviously both camps are briefing journalists and they're briefing their sides and their angles really into the into the story and obviously both sides Sheikh Jassim and Sheikh Ratcliffe they've both remained confident throughout the whole process both sides have said look we're really confident our bid is going to be successful now only one bid can be successful and there's different angles at plays and as we've, we've said they've got their own interests and reasons for, for preaching that confidence they want to make it look like they're the ones leading in the process don't they and even the Glazers, they've got their own motives as well. They increase the increase the bid, the, the bid price up, and I think looking around six billion for the club is, is, is Jesus Christ, is that not enough? Come on, you know what I mean? Can we just get this sorted and wrap it up? Um, but I mean, I'm not surprised they've uh, they've done all they can to take the money out of the club since becoming majority shareholders in 2005, and I think the process is just a bit fitting of them. Really, they've been accused of being clowns and it's become a bit of a circus hasn't it this, this whole process I mean like I said eight months on and we're still not close to resolution it seems um, as you said Rich eight to twelve weeks possibly one report from the Times I think it was um, said earlier this week that, or, or maybe yesterday actually that said it could take and that's just so unsatisfactory isn't it eight months on still no clarity with the transfer window opened this week and we've still not got an answer. And I guess a wider picture, Richard, obviously we're talking about transfers and, and, and Eric Ten Hag and, and the first team, but on a, a human level, we know staff at the club and people who work at the club and it, it's a, some fantastic people who work there and it's uncertainty around their futures as well, isn't it? Which is just really not good. No, and that is the, the whole point, isn't it, really? That you can get... You can, you can often sort of fall down the media narrative that Man United are a, are a brand, it's a TV show almost watching the football and you know it is just this this big brand and it's not real people. You forget sometimes that these footballers are young men who just so happen to be brilliant at football and they're in this climate now, they're in this environment where they have mega bucks, they have lots of money but they are still human beings with the same feelings as all of us. Yes, they might have mansions and lavish have lifestyles. What? Exactly, who would have thought Breaking it? news. And, <laughs> And you also realise that the, the bread and butter, the people who do lots of the hard work at the club, they're not paid really, really well. They are just ordinary people who still have mortgages to pay. They still have to put food on the table and, and worry about how, how ends meet. And they are deeply and you know, very, very much affected by the cost of living crisis going on in the UK. We've got inflation rates up to, what is it, 8.7% at the moment, which is you know, a record high and there's, everything costs more. And of course, the takeover puts uncertainty over their futures. And the more it goes on, the, the less clarity maybe some of them have. And of course, the summer as well is a good opportunity for people to potentially change jobs or change 
um, clubs in, in terms of football, not just in terms of players, but in terms of personnel, backroom staff. You know, it, it is sort of a, a good time for changing of the guard and, and for new structures to be put in place. And, you know, ideally the takeover would be completed now because you'd be able to get things in place heading into the new season, have real clarity. And it's important not just for what United do off the pitch. It's not important... You know, I know everyone gets fixated about who United are going to buy when the takeover goes through. What will it mean? Will there be a new shirt sponsor? What does it mean? You know, in terms of on the pitch stuff going forward. But like you said, there's so many other people behind the scenes who are going to be severely affected by what happens at United going forward. And just for the sake of every, everyone, we need to have some clarity on what is happening and when we can expect a resolution because. It is an absolute mess. Eight months, you know, there was talk initially that it was going to be all done, signed, sealed, delivered by Easter. Then it was the start of summer, start of the transfer window. We're in June now and the whole process, the fact that it's taken this long means we cannot be certain or confident that it will come to a conclusion anytime soon either. I mean, I've said all along, I've been concerned at how public it was really. I think when you look at takeovers, the general rule is you'll not hear about them until they are complete. Obviously, you look at Chelsea's takeover, with Roman Abramovich, he was sanctioned and that was very, very public uh, with Russia and Ukraine. So that was in the open. But if you look at Manchester City, was it 2008 with Abu Dhabi, obviously Newcastle, Saudi Arabia with PIF, they kind of just came out of nowhere and just happened. <clears throat> Pardon me. Obviously, there was talks and stuff and discussions that had been leaked and made public. But when you get to the latter stage of discussions, usually non-disclosure agreements get brought out and they get signed in the boardroom and it's all very confidential and legal. And yet we're still hearing briefings from either side. I oh, know Sheikh Jassim, he's really confident his bid's going to land. No, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, he's the front runner. And for me, that's been a massive concern, really, Rich, throughout the whole process. I don't think that's been a good omen. Um, obviously, the stock market, that's been moving, hasn't it? Because we are stock market experts, aren't we, Rich, on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, United share prices went up. Um, I think it reached around $25 per share, actually, which is the highest it's been in, in quite a long time. And I think that was explained by some financial experts. It's basically traders are betting on Qatar being the most likely winners because they get paid out on the shares, etc., etc. So, I mean, we'll come back to the Glazers wrap up this segment. I guess it's not surprising that it's been handled this way, Rich, because they've been terrible owners and handled this in a terrible fashion, aren't they? It's a fitting finale, I suppose, to the Glazers, yeah. isn't it? It's a badly managed process. It's taking far longer than it should do, and there's still no clarity or communication about how it's going to be resolved. You know, it, it ticks every box of, of the Glazers' ownership and tenure at the club. And again, you know, I've mentioned it on previous podcasts. I know there is, due to United being on the stock market, limitations to what they can say because that can severely, you know, affect the, the stock price and stuff. And we've seen that in the past whenever there's been public announcements, very rare ones, you know, that can have an implication on, on United's valuation. But just put a statement out there, just a hollow statement and say, we're still persevering with this. We're still looking to sell the club. Even just make clear, are you looking to sell the club completely or not? I know that would effectively say Qatar or Ratcliffe or maybe someone else who's investing in the club, but what are you leaning towards? What What is it you want to actually do? Are you still trying to sell Manchester United or are you going to be ambiguous and say, we're looking at other investment opportunities and revenue streams for the club? I just think that throughout the process, we've had eight months now, there's been opportunities to, like we said, when I, when we were at Wembley for the FA Cup final and they were there, just give some sort of update, give the fans what they deserve and whoever takes over, there needs to be clarity, there needs to be key lines of communication and there just needs to be improvement really and, you know, some United fans will say that 
any bid is better than the Glazers. Some would say that they'd rather even have the Glazers than some of the alternatives that are being suggested. But whatever happens, United, it's so long overdue. They just need owners who care and who are communicating with them on, on a regular basis. It shouldn't be much to ask, but modern football, it really is. I feel like I keep saying on this podcast, let's hope the end's in sight after every takeover discussion. And then one month later, we are talking about, I'm, bang- I'm banging my head against the wall, Rich. <laughs> so I can only yeah. imagine what supporters are feeling like, really. Do you know what I mean? So um, I'm not going to repeat that, what I've just said. Let's hope there's an end in sight because it'll, it's just tedious. It'll just go on again. No doubt we'll be sitting here in three weeks' time discussing the same. Touch wood, there is a resolution soon, but at the moment, it's very doubtful. Uh, Rich, we'll leave that for part one and we'll be back in a moment for part two. Obviously, Rich, we've discussed there with the Glazers, really, um, the impact of the discussions and the takeover and how long the process has taken on the transfers. And obviously, the window opened. Was it Wednesday morning? Um, Eric Tenag has been making plans for a good few months now. Uh, once a world-class striker and a world-class midfielder. They've obviously agreed personal terms with Mason Mount. Although, as I said in the podcast, <clears throat> pardon me, when we were last on, at a club like Manchester United, it's not really. That's never going to be really the sticking point, is it? Personal terms. They're probably going to be able to facilitate wages. It's actually agreeing a fee with Chelsea. Um, and there was a report to speak a, of a bid really for Mount. So I wanted to ask you, how much do you think Mason Mount's worth, Rich? If you were in charge, if you were John Murder, football director, sitting in that boardroom at Old Trafford, um, what strategy would you take really with this approach? And do you think he's going to be a good addition? Because there's been a lot of talk about that as well, um, whether he is the right man to bring into that midfield and freshen it up, I guess, because as we've talked about, Christian Eriksen's looking a bit tired, isn't he? Yeah, I think I mean, I mean, think a player like Mount is, is going to add value to the team. I think you've got to look at him as an improvement on, on what they've already got. He'd be a good alternative to Eriksen. He'd be more suited to United's style of play than either McTominay or, or Fred, I think. But there has to be a limit. And I do worry that Man United will, will overpay. You, you, can, you could argue they overpaid for almost everyone they bought last summer. Um, that is the one sticking point of Ten Hag's recruitment. You know, he, he's been good. I, I think the plays he's bought have been effective. They've all served a purpose. I know we keep on saying, you know, Casemiro, he's been priceless. He's added so much to the team. But he was a hell of a lot of money for a player of a limited shelf life in terms of his longevity. He already looks a bit knackered because of the extent of the football United had to play last season. I know they'll be hoping to never have a season like that again, but even the Casemiro deal was one where United paid a, a real hefty premium for him. Anthony paid over the odds for him. Malassia, you know, I know he's a Ten Hag favourite, but it, it was a relatively small deal, but it was still quite a bit of money and you can't imagine that other Premier League teams would have had to pay that for for him, really, and that's always been the case of United. That that goes back every single summer. They have it's a United, United tax, tax, isn't it? Really? Yeah, there you go. You even when they, yeah, even when they signed Daniel James, they paid what five million more than any other team would have paid that summer for him, just because they're Man United. People know what they need to to buy, and they know how much money they've got. So there's always going to be an an element of that. Um, Mason Mount, to go back to that, I think he probably is worth. Maybe fifty million, forty million pounds. I think. I wouldn't want to go consider- more than fifty personally. I mean, fifty no. million is probably fair for. I mean, he's still. I mean, it sounds 24. like Chelsea are holding out for roughly eighty million. Uh, the teams have gone to meet that's, somewhere yeah, in the middle. That's silly amount of money. When you think about United's record uh, transfer fee still paid, it was Paul Pogba just shy of ninety million, wasn't it? Um, 
And since then, they've had, you know, they've had Maguire, they've had Anthony, they've had these big deals around the £80 million pound mark. And I know it's not saying, well, if, if you're paying £80 million for Maguire, then £80 million for Mount probably is justified, but that, that shouldn't be the barometer you hold it against. And I think that United just need to, to put their foot down, really. They can't just be seen as a club that will give in eventually. And I think that's what Chelsea are, are expecting. They, they expect that United will eventually give in because they've got more money than sense quite often in the, in the transfer market. And there has to be a limit. United have to set their own deadlines. They have to set their limits and try and take control. Because we've seen in the past, I know it's tedious, but look at Man City. If a, if a team demands more than they want to pay for a player, they walk away. And they say, no, we'll look at someone else. And I think United still need to, to learn that. They've still got a bit of catching up to do. Obviously, if Ten Hag wants a player, you've got to, to back him to go out and get that player and, uh, and support him to do so. But I think there has to be a limit. You've got to take a step back and realise that Mason Mount's a good player. Is he a great player? I'm not quite so sure. Is he unique in his talents? I'm not sure he is either. I think you could get similar players for... for for a fee that's less than, than Chelsea want for him. And, you know, look across the, the league at the moment. I know Caicedo looks like he might be going to, to Chelsea. He's a different type of player. You've got Declan Rice going to Arsenal potentially for, what, 20 million more than Chelsea want for, for Mount. You've got these links of Barea, Barea going to Newcastle for, what, 50 million. I know there's a bit of a disagreement between the Italian and English press on, on that deal, but why are United not in for him? Why United not trying to sort of usurp them and get him instead? I just think that United can often become too fixated on one player. We saw it last summer. 100 days they chased Frankie de Jong and they eventually signed Casemiro. You've got to learn from that mistake and just accept that it's up. It seems they've done that with, with Harry Kane, but they seem to be entertaining it a bit more with, with Mason Mount. Like I said, ultimately, if Ten Hag wants him, let him get in. But for me, there has to come a point where United walk away if, if it's not working out. I can say those 100 days were so much fun, weren't they? When they were chasing Frankie Dijon, Frankie Dijon, Frankie Dijon all the time. But I'll come on that with Harry Kane in the second, Rich. I mean, for me, one of the biggest mistakes I've made in the last few years was not paying those agent fees for Caicedo, if you remember. They were interested in signing him for, I think it was a three million or it was a minimal fee anyways. Mm. And got put off because of the agent fees. And then you look at the player he's become. <laughs> and uh, what was he rated at 80 million now? And Chelsea are looking to sign him. He would have been fine. Fantastic, a fantastic addition to that midfield. If you can imagine him with Casemiro and Eriksen and, and Fernandez, that'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? It would work really well. Um, but with Harry Kane, it's the same thing happening again, I guess. We're in trouble or in danger, maybe, of reaching a saga. But I think the club, obviously, they've learned the lessons. They're a bit more reluctant to be drawn into that this year, understandably so, because it was a bit, it was very public, it was very drawn out. So John Merton, Richard Arnold interviewing around Europe and going to Barcelona, those pictures of them. Yeah, embarking across there for talks for Dijon. So, is it the right thing to do, Rich, to just to draw a line in the in the sand with Kane and go, look, Daniel Levy, you're you're a tricky cookie. <laughs> we're not going to entertain this if you're not going to play a ball. We're going to walk away from negotiations and, and look at someone else, really. Yeah, uh, and that is refreshing, you know. Again, there's the mitigation, though, isn't there, of the takeover? If a takeover was to happen, you know, I'd have this cash injection. Every player has a price. I know Tottenham are saying we're not selling him, we're adamant he's not going in. Daniel Levy is one of the few people in football you actually take his word for that. But if United did get this takeover, and, he, and Ten Hag's obsessed with Harry Kane, you know, he is the, the one he wants the most. He's the player who is the best bet of getting United to that next stage, taking them from pretenders to contenders. He can rival Haaland, he can add the goals, he can add the creativity. You know, Harry Kane is the one. If United had the takeover and it goes through, 
Why not bid for him once again, though? I know United are saying they've moved on, but surely you'd at least go once in with a, a bid you think is too good to refuse and, and see where you're up to then. I, I think that would be worth considering if, if things went that way. But yeah, I think in general, United do believe that it's going to be so unlikely they sign Harry Kane this summer that they are considering other targets. The issue again is that anyone who would be seen as that magic fix up front is going to cost them so much that they just do not have right now. They just don't have the finances to, to pull it off. They have to sell players no matter what happens this summer. That's going to have to bolster their funds. And if you look at someone like Hodgland, who will be playing tonight against Northern Ireland, you look at you know maybe those... I don't want to say second-tier strikers, but someone that we've mentioned in the past is maybe on... If he came to the Premier League, you'd expect him to get between sort of 10 and 15 goals. You'd expect him to sort of rival the likes of Callum Wilson and players like that and, you know, be sort of... No offence to you, Stephen, but sort of a second-tier striker <laughs> in the Premier League. And and then United's still in the same place where they've not got that elite striker they need. So I think it's just a really difficult one. In an ideal world, United would sign... Kane and Hodgeland, but that is just not going to happen. I can't see that whatsoever. It's and funny, isn't it, when you look across at the Etihad and City have just got Julian Alvarez sitting there as their backup striker. Exactly. Wouldn't he be exactly. an amazing striker to have starting at United at Old Trafford? He's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. And that's what United ideally want to have themselves. I mean, you'd argue Man City already have their Haaland replacement eventually because they've got Alvarez, who is a different type of striker. He's more of the mobile striker mould, kind of an aguero sort of player, not... The beast think, of Haaland, he, he, but... I think he's actually he might be older than Holland. You know, he's twenty three. It's Holland twenty two. I've got a feeling yeah. Holland's twenty two, and he's won the yeah. Premier League, the FA Cup, the Champions League, and the World Cup in the space of what seven months. It's ridiculous. Yeah, which yeah. is obscene. And again, United were in for Alvarez. You know, they, they looked at him. They could have gone for him themselves, but they didn't. And that's another what could have been sort of moment, isn't it? And it's it's fascinating. It's it's interesting to see how it works out, but. Yeah, the, the striker situation is still very fluid and everything is this summer because the budgets still aren't absolutely fi- finalised. There's there's rough estimates of what you can spend, but if a takeover happens, you have a lot more money. If you end up paying over the Ultimate Mason Mount, then that takes the money from elsewhere. You know, that's going to retract what you've got to spend up front. So there's so many cogs. And of course, last summer, United spent more than they wanted to, £225 million, just shy of. And... That is way more than they envisaged spending. It was offset by the fact that 11 players left for free at the end of their contract. Some of the massive earners like Pogba, Lingard, Mata. And then there's also the fact, you know, that, that Casemiro deal, United Accelerated, Anthony deal, they were going to have knock-on effects. United are always playing catch-up. So the money just isn't there to, to spend big this summer on yeah, all t- the positions take they over want and to. Not. They're going to have to sell some players on. That's the thing. Uh, you kind of look at who could possibly go... Dean Henderson, you could get a, a decent fee for him, but away from But Mark, again, I'm looking you'd at also say Dean thinking, Henderson's difficult because until De Gea signed his new deal, well, that's not just going to sell him. So many different cogs there is, there really is. And you look at who else could the sell? I mean, you look at Alex Tellez, Eric Bailly, obviously prime candidates to leave, but you're really not going to get much money for those. I think I, I laughed the no. other week when, when someone suggested that they'd get 50 million back for Tellez. They signed him for 50 million. They're not going to get that now. You're probably talking five, five, six, seven, really. Um, Eric yeah. Bailly, that's the thing you can you can get fixated about how easy it is to sell players on FIFA it's not, yeah, it's not FIFA career mode, just because that's, that's the, that's you thing. paid that amount for them does not mean you know, they've depreciated a lot and I mean like you said who who is going to buy Eric Bailly it's like, there will it's be like teams buying a car who will do it. when they're depreciating what, what car is yeah. Eric Bailly what would he be what kind of car would he be something erratic something that I can't, that I can't always breaks down but yeah yeah <laughs> 
I, I just I, to be honest I am not I do not know cars enough to even throw anything out there but I was hoping you were going to do like because neither do I so we'll swiftly move on from that comparison good analogy though <laughs> Yeah, the, I mean, the return list, Rich, that was published today, obviously on the subject of transfers. We knew Phil Jones and, and Twan Zabi were both leaving the club and, and that was obviously made official. No surprises there. Um, I broke the line about Ethan Led getting his contract extended. You did the line about Nathan Bishop. Um, Ty did the line about Tom Heaton. So we've got, we're all <laughs> doing our bits there with the, the extended contract lines. Um, but obviously, I guess the big story from the return list, Rich, was there. He obviously wasn't included officially on the return list, but... We're seeing the still in contract discussions. Um, it, it still has the potential to be his last game, doesn't it? The, the FA Cup. Because we're, we're reaching this stage now where we thought an announcement was imminent and there's this kind of interest coming from Saudi Arabia and the deal is still yet to be signed off and it's the 16th of June. His contract expires at the end of the month. So there is still potential that he could leave Manchester United this summer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what is that? Two weeks today would be his exactly. last day at Man United. Yeah. Um, and after that, he would be a free agent. You know, he can do what he wants then. And you know, United's official line was that they remain in discussions over a potential new contract. We we understand that they have been sort of terms of a new agreement are basically in place. That there is sort of a shell of a contract if if both parties want that. But but what is the point of keeping De Gea from United's point of view if they're not giving him these assurances of being number one long term or or can't guarantee it even beyond next season? I don't want to keep De Gea. If if the, if Ten Hag really sees him as the new, next the keeper for the next two three seasons, you know you've got to be thinking beyond next season. United have built solid foundations, but they've got to just be ruthless and, and, and move on. And if if De Gea is not your number one for the next two three years, then there's just no point whatsoever keeping him. Anyway, he's a massive earner. I knew I know the new proposed terms wouldn't be on quite the same high wage, but he'd still be a big earner at United. He has no interest in, in being a number two. You know, that, that's not something that appeals to him whatsoever. So even if he stays, signing a new goalkeeper would be so difficult because they'll want assurances of them being a number one. And we've seen it before that you, you can promise a backup keeper like Dean Henderson a, a key role. I know he had the COVID situation that was a sliding doors moment, but there is no track record that says, come to Man United and you will play games if you're a goalkeeper other than David De Gea. So it's a fascinating situation and I think it just sums up United again, this, the, the uncertainty about what they want to do. How is it two weeks before his contract expires, it's in such a mess where you're still not sure if you want them next season to be number one or not? Like You've got to know that. You've got to have known that months ago. And I know the run-in in the FA Cup final affected the way that, that De Gea was maybe seen to, to a degree, but come on. You should know now, and you if you don't know already, then that's that's a huge worry um, for me. United just need to make this ruthless call. He's either your number one and you give him a new contract, or he's not. Get rid. There is no worth for anyone in De Gea staying around if he's not playing every single week. I said in, I think it was after the Sevilla game, when we were discussing uh, that game on this podcast, I was like, Do you know, what? I could see it happening. I could see him leaving. Um, even though there was obviously strong talk of him obviously extend the contract and we understand he's been in talks but I could still see it happening and then obviously those mistakes happened against West Ham and then he d- the plunder in the second half against City mm-hmm. we didn't move his feet just still really didn't even Gundogan's goal um, and he's a keeper that's stuck in the past if we're being completely honest Rich and I think that's where United need to leave him but 
it always seems to come back to the hair on this podcast, doesn't it? It always does. But I mean, it's been yeah. very topical over the last three months. Well, yeah, episode. welcome to Manchester Red Podcast, where we discuss the same things every <laughs> single week, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, he's been at the club 12 years. And it, it, look, if he does leave, he's been a fantastic servant. That's the thing. We'll have heavily scrutinised him this season, and deservedly so. He's made some great saves in, in to balance it out. He's, he's still won the, the Golden Glove Award. He's, he's kept the most clean sheets in the Premier League which is a, a little bit of a quirk considering the mistakes he's, he's made and the uncertainty around his future. But if he is to leave Rich, he's been a fantastic goalkeeper for the club. Um, served them so well. He was generally the world's best goalkeeper for around three seasons. Um, and he'll leave, I guess, that legacy behind because when you think about Manchester United goalkeepers, it's Schmeichel and De Gea. You can, you can definitely hold them up in the same breath, I think, as, as Schmeichel. Yeah, absolutely. I think... He is an all-time great for United, and I suppose the other element is if he does go, you need to get that testimonial sorted because he, he is one of the few United players of, of the modern era, certainly, definitely, maybe the only one post-Ferguson who, who would deserve a testimonial, thoroughly deserves that recognition and that send-off from, from United fans. So hopefully that could happen if, if and when he ever leaves the club. He, he does get that recognition. He is a, a modern great. He's been you know, just that constant, reliable man even amid some, you think of some of the defences he's played and some of the teams he's he's been involved in and he's always stood out. And the fact that he even won Player of the Year award so often and was getting so much recognition says what a wonderful man and wonderful goalkeeper he is. And, you know, professional trainer, he's always been set in very high standards. The other goalkeepers at the club will always speak wonderfully of him and, and how you know focused he is and how he just gets on with things. You know, he's a bit reserved. I know he's not always been as vocal as other goalkeepers, but... To his credit, when he has made mistakes this season, he has came out, hasn't he? That's the thing. He has spoken. Yeah, he's always been. This season, he wanted to speak to report as the the press pack. It was Brentford, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, after his disaster class at Brentford. Yeah, takes credit for that. Yeah, exactly, and yeah, he's a United. We will miss him as as what he represents because he is a model pro for them, and he's he's always just got on with with things. And yeah, it'll be a shame if and when he does leave because it will be you know just disappointing that a goalkeeper that as good as him didn't win what he should have done you know like you said he was the best goalkeeper in the world for maybe three seasons and the trophy cabinet doesn't reflect how good he really really was and you know Schmeichel will always have that over De Gea in terms of those accolades but I think lots of people would, would still pick De Gea over him for, for what he means what he represents and for sticking with United as well through, through thick and thin I know he's been paid very well and that was obviously the failed move to Real Madrid, but he has still still stayed there. <laughs> I was just about to say that. De Gea said he's got no regrets, which obviously about the move collapsing. But if that fax machine did work, he'd won. He would have won three Champions Leagues on the bounce <laughs> if he had went to yeah. the Bernabeu, obviously, because <laughs> that coincided no regrets. with Real Madrid dominating the Champions League. But hashtag no regrets, of course. Uh, we'll move on to part three in a second, Rich. Uh, that's all for part two. So for part three, Rich, just to wrap up the podcast, we'll have a bit of pre-season talk because the schedule has been confirmed. Though we've got seven games now penciled in. They've got obviously the first games in Oslo, which you're heading out to. They've got playing Leeds on there. You went there last year. We've got Leon in Edinburgh. I'm going to cross there, and I think it's Ty and Samuel who are heading to North America. So Arsenal, Wrexham, Real Madrid, Dortmund, all in North America, and then they're ending it with a trip to Dublin. So. Sounds like quite a little good tour, doesn't it, Rich? I mean, you could definitely get on the drink on throughout the seven games, I think, if you're, you're a supporter following around you, the world. 
I would think you also if you're a supporter then. Yeah, if you were <laughs> part of the dedicated pack maybe yeah. as well. But um, yeah, it's I mean it's it's an interesting schedule again. I mean I think you know United are always gonna play high high caliber teams really, and it's a interesting way for it to start. I mean. Leeds game has maybe lost a little bit of gloss because it would have been arranged when they were still in the Premier League. You're, you're, you're playing Championship side in, in Oslo. That, that was the same way United played them in Perth in 2019. You know, Leeds were a Championship side still sort of in transition under Marcelo Bielsa and it was a no contest on the day. I know it was pre-season so there's not much contest anyway but United, it was a training exercise. You know, really, really was. Leon game will be interesting as well. Um, and then yeah, the, the the US tour is always always the most fascinating because by that stage United will have played those opening two games. And you look back historically at preseason, it is the opening two games where there's more switching plays. Maybe play half an hour, some of them play a half of football, but you change the whole team wholesale. And then it'll be by the time United get on the US tour that the the squad that's going to be playing in the Premier League will start to take shape a, a lot more. You know. Certainly the Real Madrid game after they will have played Arsenal. The Wrexham game is completely being treated as an academy match by, by United. So if you've bought tickets for that, you're not going to be seeing Rashford. You're not going to be seeing Harry Kane. You're not going to be seeing you know any of these uh, these big names who, who could sign as well, probably. It's going to be very much... Maybe players like Ahmad or Alanga, if they're not getting the minutes in, in the first team, you know, the youth players who are going to be going on tour might get a chance, but I expect it to be Reese Bennett, Kobe Mainu, you know, Dan Gore, could be Majaira if he signs this new deal, it could be Emiran. You know, it's, it's I not think going that's to be really interesting seeing those lads, obviously, in the 21s, and Wrexham have just been promoted in, with record points, but I think it would be really interesting to see them pit against Wrexham. Uh, obviously yeah, certainly. Know. I think from Rexon's point of view as well, you know, they're going to be looking at a potential loan signing or two this summer. They've never signed a loan player under under Phil Parkinson since since the takeover. There's not been one loan player, but EFL rules. You, there's more scope, and I've, I've said before on the podcast, but Zidane Iqbal, Charlie Savage, could one of those go to League Two and, and play for for Rexon? You know, I think there there is there, there's scope there, and it would suit most parties. I think I know it's not Rexon building for the long term, and they, they wouldn't be playing every single week, you know, in League Two. But I think that it'd certainly be fascinating to see, and you know, who knows? There could be talks after after that game in terms of potential deals. But from what I've heard as well from United's point of view, that they are saying that internally and in sort of. The most talked about game of summer is United against Wrexham, and it's Man United Academy against Wrexham. It's the power you know? of Ryan is, Reynolds, isn't it? Yeah, that has been the most talked about game, and from Wrexham's point of view as well. Wrexham are playing Chelsea. Mauricio Pochettino's first game in charge is against Wrexham, but the most talked about <laughs> game is against United Reserves. And even though people, lots of people do know it's an academy game, it's still got so much hype and intrigue about it. And what's you know another factor to consider is so. United play Wrexham on the 25th and it's the day later, the 26th, that United play Real Madrid. So, you know, it isn't going to be a case of loads of play, players playing against Wrexham and San Diego and then going to Houston the next day to play against Real Madrid. You know, the first teamers and those involved against Real Madrid will not be involved against Wrexham. So I just want to sort of spell that out. But yeah, I do think it's an interesting schedule and, you know, I think nice of United to go back to the US as well after, you know, obviously one pre-season was, was cancelled completely but going to sort of the to Australia and to Asia sort of back to back I think it's it's nice them to go back to the US and yeah in, interesting because you know I, it might only be pre-season but United versus Real Madrid is just about the biggest fixture in, in world football still 
the land of the free and the home of the brave, Rich, this summer for Manchester United. Um, I, I definitely see said Nick Ball's going to leave. He wanted to leave in January, didn't he, on loan. So I think a loan exit's probably likely for him. I've got a feeling, Rich, I think Cobby will be kept around the first team. Cobby Mainu. Um, yeah. Tenor quite likes to keep uh, the odd youngster around the team. I mean, you look at Ganacho and the way his development's been done, and he's been kept around the first team environment, learning off senior heads. And I think uh, Mainu's going to be probably in that role uh, and that kind of mode, yeah. keep him around the first and keep him learning. So look, hopefully he gets a, a few games in preseason. I mean, you look at who else was alone in the championship uh, this season, just gone. You had Alvaro Fernandez at Preston. Hannibal Medbury, obviously, at Birmingham and Ahmad at Sunderland, who we've, we've talked about quite a bit. And it's, it's going to be a good chance for those players, isn't it, to, to really get make a statement, I guess, and try and press turn hard because they've all had really good seasons in the Championship. So, uh, out of all the players probably in the academy, those three are kind of closest to making that, making that step up, really. And I, I really, I'm a big fan of Fernandes. I, I quite rate him, Rich. I've been watching him in the Championship, obviously, this season. He's done really well for Preston. Yeah. I guess the only problem is you've got Luke Shaw, who's a guaranteed starter. He's so highly rated by Ten Hag. And you've got Malassia as well, who was his first signing. So I guess the, the route to the first team is kind of blocked. But he could try fight for a place, couldn't he, this preseason? It'd be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I think Alvaro is probably the most likely of the Championship players to even stick around, I'd say. Because... Ahmad had such a good season. I think he has to be playing regularly foot, regular football. I think as an attacker, he's got to keep that confidence because that's what a lot, of, a lot of it comes down to. There's never been any doubts of his ability. He just needed time to settle and the confidence of, of playing every week. And you saw that at Sunderland. When he, when he went there, he wasn't, you know, there's was clear quality, but he wasn't really doing much. And in the second half of the season, he was a completely different player. He was arguably the most informed championship player this calendar year, really. He's been phenomenal. And, Alvaro is interesting because, you know, last season, Dallow had to play left back quite a bit and, you know, United were limited. Although, like you said, they've got Shaw and they've got Malassia. Shaw has shown enough that he could play centre-back if needed for, for some games and you've only got Malassia on, on left back. I know, like, again, Dallow can play there, but he still is a bit susceptible and quite clearly isn't the same player. And, yeah, I, I do think that Alvaro Fernandez is giving United a lot to think about and... If he was to go on loan, I mean, Championship, he's kind of proven himself there already. I don't really see any yeah, worth you'd going there. He needs to go to the next step. Yeah, definitely. Premier League or La Liga, maybe. You know, obviously being Spanish himself, if a, if a La Liga team came in for him, I think that would be quite compelling just for him to go out and play regular football every week, get some massive tests against some of the best teams in the world as well. But... Is it in United's interest? They've got to... The fact is, United are so big and they've got so many players and they've got such a good academy. There is always going to be an element of being greedy and, and hoarding players that they don't quite need to because they might need Fernandes for a handful of games this season. They might not. I mean, you know, we saw Mark Gerardo was on the bench for one game against Nottingham Forest, wasn't he? And you'd expect Fernandes to be getting more opportunities than that next season. Carabao Cup games and you'd know, still be eligible to playing the Papa John's I think as well if, if required and could drop down to the under 23s if needed and that's the dilemma for United you know after someone's had a good loan and they quite clearly have something to offer in the first team do you send them out on loan again or, or do you keep them for your own sort of self-benefit and yeah it's going to be fascinating to see and, and like you said I think the summer the summer schedule will, will affect that I'll tell you what when you look back at the summer of 2020 it was Alvaro Fernandez, obviously Ganacho and Mark Gerardo who came in from Spain and three great signings, three tremendous signings. When you look at, you'd say they were better than any first team signings they made that summer. <laughs> Probably in the twenty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> you're right, you're right. Yeah, I mean, look what they're going on to do now. I mean, it's very good deals that they got there from Spain. Uh, before we end the podcast, which I thought you were asking, did you get into any trouble when you were in Oslo last year? Because obviously you're going there again this year. I'm getting sent to Murrayfield, where I was uh, with Bruce Springsteen uh, just a couple of weeks ago. But was there any tales from Oslo that are worth retelling? There wasn't many. I mean, the only problem with Oslo for me was... And this isn't going to be too much of a gripe because it is, you know, a dream job. And I'm not trying to say, where is me? Get the violins out. But they flew me to the wrong airport. And there is an airport in Oslo. Oh, did, you, is... did you fly yourself to the wrong airport? They no, I was, I was booked onto a flight. <laughs> and, you know, I understand there's, there's pricing issues. And you've got to, you know, do things the right way. But they booked me to another... F- I mean, was it Ryanair I went with? I think it was. I mean, in a typical Ryanair fashion, they booked me to an airport that was two hours away from Oslo. It was, um, yeah, it was Sandefjord, which, you know, it was okay. And it's a popular route to do still. But I mean, we, so, oh, okay. Well, actually, I say I've not got any tails. I've got a tail. So I was flying out and the flight we were on was delayed anyway. We'd been delayed for like an hour before leaving Manchester to Sandefjord. And then, I don't want to, this isn't, I'm not, this isn't a reflection of English football fans, but basically some United fans on the plane opened their duty free and started drinking it on the runway, got arrested. Um, the police had to come arrest them off the plane, escort them out. Um, the flight was delayed for another hour and a half, which was fantastic. Um, we then flew to Sandefjord. My connection, I'd, I'd booked a coach. You can get a coach from Sandefjord to Oslo, which takes two hours. We were already two hours late for that, so that had been delayed for, for so long. I ended up getting to Oslo about midnight. There's one bus left to my hotel, but it didn't actually go to my hotel, so I had to get on this bus. I didn't know how buses worked in Norway. Turns out you, you buy a ticket, but it's like you buy it on your phone, and you don't have to show it to the bus driver. It's all done on trust, which, you know, in the UK... It's very Norwegian. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to get my... But I don't want to be the guy who, you know, breaks the rules. So I had to buy this ticket, find the bus. I just couldn't find the bus stop whatsoever. Luckily managed to ask someone. They got me on this bus, got to the hotel. But the hotel was like a 20-minute walk away. So I'm walking through Oslo. I get to my hotel. I think it's like 2 a.m. now. I, I sort of check in. And then I have the game the next day. United lose 1-0 to Atletico Madrid. And then that's it, really. There's nothing really else to do. No players stopped because there was no interest to stop after a defeat. Ten Hag wasn't doing any post-match press conference. So I just had to, even to, to kill in Oslo. The charity shield was on, community shield between Liverpool and City. Went and watched that with a couple of colleagues. But the colleagues were both flying home the next day. They were flying at like 9am. Again, this wonderful company we worked for. Um, booked me a flight home at 9pm or 10pm it was. So I had a day to kill in Oslo. They were like the most expensive city in Europe. And I was just so, I was just waiting. I had to check out the hotel at 10 a.m. You had, the, time your life. <laughs> you had, I had to check out the hotel at 10 a.m. And I just had 12 hours to kill in Oslo by myself. What'd it wasn't do? nice Sit weather. Sit in a coffee shop, have a stroll. I walked around like the old castle grounds, which is quite boring. I think I went to, did I go to McDonald's? That would be very on brand, wouldn't it, Inevitable. for a Brit abroad if I did yeah, that. Inevitable. And then I had to get this two-hour coach back to Oslo Air, to Sancho Ford Airport. And, again, my flight home was delayed by three hours. So, yeah. <laughs> It, was it, it Ryan one night back Oslo. as well? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. So it was, it was just so stressful. And well, it was I'm... just, it just took so long. It, it could, I could have, flo- like, you know, in an idea, I could have flown to Oslo and got to the ground two hours before kickoff and gone home two hours later. But <laughs> what could have been a day trip effectively was like three days away and there was not much going on. 
I was just checking the date there. 12th of July is when the play leads in Oslo. So when we come on this podcast, I will be revisiting this and see if uh, you had a bit of a streamlined, more pleasant yeah. experience. Yeah, because it sounds a bit of a mess, that. Uh, but again, like, I don't want to be one of these whiny journalists saying, oh, I've got a tough life watching That's exactly what you are. That's exactly what you are. That is what I'm saying. Exactly. That's exactly what you are. Well, hopefully, uh, if we're on a podcast on Monday or next week, I don't sound like absolute death. Hopefully, I improve across the weekend. And I've got the pleasure of seeing you on Saturday afternoon, Rich Dawn. We're going out for a few, a few bevs. Yeah, exactly. It'll be um, very exciting. I'm looking forward Rich to it. see how tanned to... we are by Monday. <laughs> Rich took too long to reply there as if it was a surprise <laughs> that he's seen us on Saturday. As if he's reluctant to actually spend time with me outside of work hours. Um, we'll leave it there anyways, Rich. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. And thanks for listening as usual. Have a great weekend. All the best and take care.